0: Jared, how you doing? Yep. That's all. All right. That's not. That's not really an answer. Um, are you ready to record today? I think we're doing a Muppet sh- Muppet News Show this time. I yep. All right. Is something on your mind, Jared?
1: No. 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 It's fine. It's. It's fine. Like it's it's no it's more it's just, no it's fine it's just, how could you say oh. the muppet movie wasn't as good as you remembered oh oh
0: okay all right so this is about what i posted on facebook when i
1: it's always about what you post on facebook
0: it's always about what i post on facebook that's i'll make a note of that yes so okay so i i said that i watched the muppet movie recently the 1979 original muppet movie and I didn't say I didn't like it. I just said it wasn't as good as I remembered. In fact, I yeah, it wasn't nearly wrong, as good. which is the as
1: wrong opinion. Oh. Like everyone's entitled to their opinions, but yours is incorrect.
0: Okay. Welcome to Muppet Fans Talking. Join us as Jim Henson fans from around the globe come together with commentary on the news and productions of the Jim Henson Company, Sesame Workshop, Muppet Studio, and beyond. Now, here's your host, or at least he's one of them, J.D. Hansel. Tis autumn, everyone, and Muppet Hub is back with another podcast for you. This is episode number, where are we now, 10 of Muppet Fans Talking, and I am so happy to be joined once again by my good friend, well, he may not be by the end of this show, Jared Fairclough from The Muppet Mindset. Jared, welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah, I'm not interested in doing all the pleasantries, let's just get into it.
0: Okay, fine. Tell me this, how... How well do you remember the 1979 Muppet movie? When was the last time you watched it?
1: Uh, I would say in the last six months.
0: Within the last six months. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I... Also, like, one of my favorite films of all time. Right. Um, and I think one of mine. Now... Well, I don't know what that it is, but anyway,
0: continue on. <laughs> <coughs> Pardon me. That, um, was, a, that was aggressive. That was... <laughs> So I had not seen it in a while, or at least I hadn't seen it all the way through in a while. A few months ago, I was listening to, or I was watching a few clips occasionally so I could start listening to the Move and Ride Along podcast that they do over at uh, Tough Pigs, where they take the Muppet movie two minutes at a time. Each episode of the podcast, they're just talking about a two-minute portion of the Muppet movie until they've covered the whole entire movie. It's mm-hmm. an impressive podcast. I appreciate their incredible dedication. Um, and I wanted to listen along because it's it's fun. I have now listened to the first six episodes. I enjoy it. Um, but I was having this problem as I was first trying to get into it because I would watch two minutes of the Muppet movie and then I would just have to keep watching the Muppet movie because I'd get kind of, you know, sucked in and curious since it had been a little while since I'd seen it. And I didn't have time to go on watching... 20 minutes of the Muppet movie every time I wanted to listen to a 40-minute podcast. So I kind of waited on listening to the podcast until I had time to sit down and watch the Muppet movie in full, and I had that recently when I was watching the movie with my friend James. He had never seen it before, it was his first time, and as I was watching it with him on a nice big screen, on the Blu-ray, in good, rich color, I thought, man... Is this really the first piece of classic Muppet material I want to be showing him? And I know he was enjoying it. He was having a good time. He wasn't criticizing it at all. After we watched it, I think he pretty much just had positive things to say. We were talking about how much we enjoyed Mel Brooks' character, how the use of Orson Welles was really brilliant, that sort of thing. Um, But I was annoyed. Throughout the whole movie and afterwards, I was annoyed because... I remembered this movie as being practically perfect in every way, as being pretty much my favorite movie. When people ask me what my favorite movie is, I will usually say the 1979 Muppet movie. And watching it, I realized I can't say that. Because as much as I do like it, and I like it a lot, some things about it just aren't quite working for me. Have you ever had that experience, Jared? With the Muppet movie? No. With any Muppet movie?
1: Um... I think the two thousand and eleven Jason Siegel Muppet movie wasn't as good the second time. Hmm. I don't think it was the best way to reintroduce the characters. I think Muppet's Most Wanted was a lot better movie. I of course still enjoyed it, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't great.
0: So I think When I first saw the Muppet movie as a kid, I I was late in the game, right? So I was probably first seeing it when I was mm, 10, 11. Not like as a really little kid. I wasn't really raised on Muppet stuff apart from Sesame Street and Bear in the Big Blue House. So I was watching it getting into Muppet fandom and I kind of took it for granted that this was the Muppet movie. And so I came into it from a young age with a very very open mind assuming that the movie was practically perfect and if i didn't get any of the jokes or if something wasn't working for me that was my fault for being a kid and not appreciating its full genius and then i just got used to the movie from seeing it many times until i just kind of fell in love with it if only because of the familiarity with it and so now coming back to it after a while having studied both mass com, video and film production and film studies the analysis of film and writing about film um, at two different institutions, I'm looking at it as a movie and comparing it to other Muppet productions at the same time and trying to figure out how well does this work as a story, how well do the jokes land, uh, how well is this using the music, how well is it using the characters, how well does it flow, and it's really an odd movie. So, the, the first odd thing about it is its first act, Because normally, in an Act 1 of your movie, you get some time to know a character or two. And everything that you're going to need in order for Acts 2 and 3 to be charged with a lot of drama and conflict and to have a lot of fun, that's all set up in Act 1, or at least a lot of it is set up. And you get to know the characters and know why it is that they're doing what they're doing, and what motivates them, and so on and so forth. Some movies have a very long Act 1. The Lion King has a very, very long first act. It's like the first half of the movie, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually, it's more like about a third of the film. Here in the Muppet movie, you get a prologue. You start with the Muppets all coming together to watch the Muppet movie. Then you get into the Muppet movie, you know, the Muppet movie within the Muppet movie, and you have another prologue, which is... The, the credits, you go through the clouds, you come down into the swamp, and there's Kermit singing the Rainbow Connection. All of that is before the plot actually gets started. The story starts when Bernie the agent comes in. And that one scene with Bernie is the entire first act. And that's strange. That is all that we get to set up this story. And admittedly, right. there are earlier versions of the story that draw this out. But really, they were just padding it out. They were just stretching out the length of Kermit's decision-making process. Um, They were adding him, like, having a conversation with George Burns about it for some reason. And with his furry friend, Fred.
1: That's a weird uh, script, that original one.
0: Yeah. So I'm glad that they cut a lot of that unnecessary stuff out. But what's odd is when you go right into this thing with, first, a collection of gags and jokes, which is basically the first prologue, right? We're here to heckle the Muppet movie through I Saved You a Seat But Somebody Took It, which is just Miss Piggy repeating a joke they already made. You start with a bunch of jokes, not really getting to the story, and once you think we're going to get into things, immediately they hit you with the song The Rainbow Connection. And obviously it's a beautiful song, it's one of the best songs in Muppet history, but its placement makes it kind of boring here. And admittedly, part of why I find it boring is probably because I've heard this song a great many times. But the the song itself I tend to enjoy. It's just that it's in a place where it slows down the narrative momentum. If you look at something like The Wizard of Oz, which is clearly an inspiration for this scene and arguably the film as a whole, they f- start off with conflict. The first shot after the opening credits and opening text is Dorothy running. They start with her in the middle of a conflict, and that's going to charge everything else that happens later. And so you get to know her and her life and her family and what it is she's used to. And once you've come to like her, and once you've gotten some of the story stuff set up, then you can go into Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and at that point it packs a punch. If The Wizard of Oz had opened with Somewhere Over the Rainbow, then it would have opened by putting the audience to sleep... And it would have taken a while for the audience to wake up again.
1: Okay. May I now make my counterpoint? Go for it. Okay. I think it's hard for people our age, people who weren't born when the Muppet movie was not sorry. Well, yeah, when the Muppet movie came out, when the original Muppet show was on, because you have to remember you get this in um, Brian J. Jones's book and in a few other places the Muppet Show was the biggest thing on television at the time. It was the biggest thing in the world. And so these characters were being seen by literally hundreds of millions of people every week. Yes. If you so when this film came out, what this came out between was it between season 3 and 4?
0: Uh so... Something
1: like that. Around around that time. I think around it might time. have
0: been right before season three, but maybe it was before season four. I can't recall.
1: Okay, well, at least it came out when the Muppets had already been established. Correct. If you spent 20 minutes or so getting to know these characters, getting to know Kermit the Frog, before he actually went and did his thing, it would have been 20 minutes poorly spent because we already know these characters. We already know what Kermit the Frog is like. We already know what Kermit the Frog does so to spend any time with him getting to know him if you will is time spent where you can't get to the story the story is just him getting to hollywood picking these people up along the way you need to get to these characters as quickly as you can otherwise the audience is going to be sitting there going where's Fozzie? where's gonzo where's miss piggy that's you know we want to see these favorite characters so to get to them as soon as possible So, if you want to do an opening act, like you said, with conflict and, you know, getting to know these characters before they actually um, kick off,
0: honestly, you're just wasting uh, 20 minutes. So, I anticipated you making that point, and it is a very good point, but the thing is, on The Muppet Show, we had only seen a very particular version of Kermit. We had seen Kermit as the boss, as the showrunner, as a host— No, even
1: as a showrunner and as a host, he's still, I think, I think what you get in the Muppet show and especially those first two, three seasons, I think that's enough. Like that Kermit uh, correlates very closely to the Kermit that you get in the Muppet movie. I don't think there's a lot of difference between the two.
0: I actually, when I watched this, noticed a stark difference. It occurred to me, for people watching this in the 70s, this is the first time seeing Kermit portrayed as a dreamer. This is the first time in which we learn Kermit's motivation for doing anything. We've never fully understood why he got stuck with the job of managing a bunch of crazies that half the time in the early seasons of The Muppet Show, he doesn't even seem to like at all. And so, to me, it feels like this is a sudden turn of character, and the movie takes its own version of Kermit for granted, and I think that what would have benefited the film was to start by showing us a Kermit who just flat out isn't the Kermit that we recognize, and isn't the Kermit that we know from The Muppet Show, and he's going to have to go through some growth and development throughout the course of the movie. That would have been interesting. Seeing how Kermit the Frog became the Kermit we know would have been really cool. But instead, he starts off as this, you know, perfect Mary Sue, if you will, who's just an innocent dreamer who just wants to make people happy. And really at no point in the film is he conflicted until he reaches that one point when he thinks he's failed. And even then... That that, that seems like he's hardly really conflicted about anything. He doesn't have any hard choices to make. He just kind of doubts himself and then talks himself out of doubting himself. So I'm not really waiting in this movie for Kermit to do anything except make it to Hollywood, check, and meet his Muppet friends, check, and tell a few jokes, check, which is just checking boxes. It's not really development. It's not really a story progressing. It's just checking off boxes. And that's, the, the sense that I got throughout the course of the film was, we're checking off this box, we're checking off this box, we're checking off this box. Very much like the laundry list approach that The Great Muppet Caper had in its uh, script writing process, right? Jim comes with a list and says, I wanted to have Muppets coming down on parachutes, I wanted to have a mystery, I wanted to have lots of Muppets on bicycles, go. And then they just have to find some way to do a script that checks off that list. For, um, Mirror Mask, the Henson Company, similarly, gave the writer a laundry list, just following in Jim's method, and he just had to check off all the boxes. And a lot of times that hurts the story. Here, I do think that hurts the story, because there are so many scenes in this movie that feel like they're not doing anything story-wise. And if you had cut that scene from the film it wouldn't have made a big difference. Like, this movie could be half as long and I think it would still hit a lot of the same story beats.
1: Right, but this movie... You also have to take this movie on its own merit in that this was... There was a lot of novelty going into this film. The novelty of this film was the Muppets on a big screen, the Muppets out of a, uh, out of a theatre and in the real world. Okay, yes, meeting... You know, the whole uh, electric mayhem scene. Doesn't add anything, but it's there. Uh, the whole, um, hell, even the whole, yes, okay, there's some sort of story to it, but really you could get rid of it It doesn't add anything uh, between Kermit and Piggy at the restaurant with Steve Martin. Yeah. But even to that point, okay, yes, you make a good point that those, you know, scenes don't really add much, but to take this film on its own merits, take this film as the novel, as, as, to look at it through the filter of novelty, I think all those scenes are necessary to at least push the film forward to the point it gets to. It's needed to, um, what's the point I'm trying to make? It gets to, we, we just want to see all these characters in the same place at the end. So, yes, you know, the electric mayhem scene doesn't do an awful lot, but it still introduces those characters. Yes, um, you know, there are scenes where characters pop up very briefly just to pop up again at the end. They are all needed to get to that final point. And so to look at that final point, I don't think,
0: um, sorry, go on. Well, I'm not saying that all of these scenes that aren't contributing to the story needed to be cut. That's not my argument. What I'm No, saying I don't
1: know I, I understand that, but I mean that I still don't think I think to take this film on its own merit and to look at it yeah, with that novelty and with, you know, getting it all to that point where they're all in the room at the end, it's all um, I don't s I I I wouldn't say any of it's filler, if that makes sense.
0: So Two things. Um, first, I, I don't think that it's filler. I think it's just an example of And then transitions. Um, If you're familiar with this principle, the listener, you, you must be, but the listeners maybe not. There's this whole idea in writing that when you're telling a good story, or possibly even when you're writing a good essay with a good argument, but definitely with films and TV shows, you want your transitions from scene to scene to be either but then or therefore. If your whole movie is just, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, that's going to bore the audience. But if it's, this happens, so this happens, but then this happens, so this happens. Well, that's the kind of thing that keeps it a story and not just a series of stuff happening. And the Muppet movie at times comes across as a series of stuff just happening.
1: Right, but then to that point, you've got the whole storyline going on with Doc Hopper.
0: Yes, and he does provide some butt-thens. The problem is, they're kind of random butt-thens. I mean, nearly every occurrence of Doc Hopper has you going, how in the world did he do this? How did we get here? Like, Doc Hopper is one of the strangest villains in movie history. He... So he basically introduces himself saying that he's a pretty small uh, business owner, but he does seem to have a few of these stores in operation. And he can't seem to get a decent film crew to put together his commercial. If you look in, in the bonus features and see the commercial in full, you can see that yep. they have a lot of little gags there about how you can see the lights on the, in the shot or the cue card is in the shot, a lot of that stuff. Um and yet somehow he's got a ton of money he's able to hire a professional frog killer he mysteriously has a remote control that controls the television sets in the department store so that they can just start playing his commercial like that struck me as I know that it sounds nitpicky to point that out as like oh plot yeah. hole but my point is not oh plot hole my point is this is just awkward lazy writing um and then he has control over a radio station he has hired tons of killers and an amazing German scientist. I mean, this guy just has incredible power. And all of that could lend itself to an interesting villain if there was any or it could moment.
1: Lead itself, Or it could lead itself to the President of the United States.
0: Or it could Thank lend you. itself to the President of the
1: United States. That was political satire. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes,
0: it was. Um, technically, I have to count it as political satire. But the thing is, what he's after just has so little to do with Kermit, because we know from the beginning, Kermit is never going to be tempted by Doc Hopper's offer. All of Doc Hopper's attempts to persuade Kermit are really useless, and it takes him a while before he even becomes a legitimate, you know, physically violent threat. Um, So it's just this awkward forced conflict where, for whatever reason, they want Kermit, and Doc Hopper is willing to kill him if that's what it takes to get a stuffed Kermit doing their commercials? Like, I don't even know how they think that's going to be better than the costume. How is a stuffed dead frog going to sell your frog legs? I mean, the whole thing just feels very, very forced, and it wasn't doing it for me. I couldn't get into this conflict with the villain. I'm like, why are we wasting our time on this guy when he's just not adding enough to this story. He just doesn't pose a significant threat or make me concerned that Kermit's going to make the wrong choice. And he doesn't make any sense.
1: Right. To your point before, though, at least with Doc Hopper from, you know, getting to know him when he first pops up. Okay, yes, he has the remote and everything like that, and that's just silly. But... At least he, his character ramps up from, you know, humble sort of... Um, humble sort of... What's the word? Uh, business owner to, you know, violent threat.
0: It's true. The one great e- thing e- e- about... Everett. What? Sorry, go on. I was going to just agree with you. The one great thing about Doc Hopper as a villain is he starts off seeming so mild and it builds to the point where he's hired a ton of killers.
1: Right. So if you want character progression... If you want character progression in this film, Doc Hopper is who you have to look at. Even Max to that point is who you have to look at. It's because true. Max goes from, you know, whiny little, um, whiny little servant boy, basically, to, you know, a strong sort of, you know, stands up to Doc Hopper, does everything he can to basically save Kermit. Uh, so, you know, if you want character development, I feel like, those two are the ones you need to be looking at.
0: It's true. Max is the strongest character in in this story in some respects. Um, but you
1: also have to. But you also have to think about character development. How far can you really take the Muppets? Because they were still, you know, making a TV series at the time. You can't change them from one thing to another. So at the end, they're right. completely different to the way they were at the start. Right. Because they need to be recognizable at the start. And at the end, they still need to be the characters that you've got, you know, in season two of the Muppet Show, or and season three of the Muppet Show, or three and four, whatever the film came out in between. So, I think that's the main reason why there's not a lot of character development in Kermit, Piggy, Fozzie, Gonzo, all those sort of characters, because otherwise they would just be. There's only a finite um, amount of time you can take them in this setting and especially why you've got a
0: show going on at the same time. Right, right. And the tricky thing there, though, is that you normally want the conflict that is in place to be directly related. Like, the, you want your opposition, whatever the threat is, whatever the antagonist is up to, you normally want that to be uh, in conversation with the particular ways in want your in which you want your character to grow. Mm-hmm. And so the consequence of having Kermit not really able to grow because the show was going on and all that stuff that you just pointed out is there's just not much that doc hopper can do that responds to what kermit is after because the movie is trying to say doc hopper is promising kermit the same thing that that hollywood ad is that's a con a continuing thing is kermit goes after the ad to be rich and famous Doc Hopper's going to give him that opportunity to be rich and famous. But because they rewrote the script at a certain point so that what Kermit's really after is to make millions of people happy, well, operating a fast food chain that serves frog legs means millions of frogs on tiny crutches. So there's really no relationship between what Doc Hopper wants... And what Kermit wants. They have to try to force the relationship with the very careful wording of the script. And once you've seen the movie a few times, you realize, like, why is Doc Hopper even trying? Like, he should get to the point of being willing to kill Kermit a little sooner, I think. Um, Right,
1: so you've just said something interesting, which is if you see this film a few times, do you think there is an element of us overthinking this because we've seen this movie a hundred times? I
0: think that's possible.
1: Um, but... I would be interested in having this same conversation with someone who only watched it once.
0: Right. What I'm trying to do here is, through my overthinking and overanalysis, articulate what it is that I suspect might make this uh, less approachable, less enjoyable, or less um, of a really engaging, immersive experience uh, for a newcomer. I'm trying to figure out... Basically, what someone who watched the movie for the first time might not be able to articulate, but would probably at some level be experiencing. Which is, why isn't the movie as much of a thrill in terms of the conflict with the villain as even some arguably weaker Muppet movies like Muppet Treasure Island? And I will
1: say, though, I think Muppet Treasure Island has the most well-defined villain out of any Muppet movie.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, just the strongest villain in general um yeah. let's see where should i go from here so i get bothered by some of the jokes here some of the jokes that are showing you stuff that's flat out impossible and i'm trying to figure out why is it that i have an issue with some of the jokes that are absurd whereas some of the jokes i enjoy for their absurdism okay um and right. that's that's been tell difficult me, tell, for tell me, me,
1: to me tell me what you're not enjoying
0: Well, so I know what I do enjoy is the myth-myth gag. How the lady from the El Sleizo somehow reappears behind the billboard. Yeah. Um, What I'm not enjoying is when there's another billboard that does the pie in the face, where a car crashes Mm -hmm. into the billboard and the billboard throws a pie, which Mm -hmm. Max can actually, you know, Max licks some of the whipped cream, and I like the detail of him actually licking it. But... Mm -hmm. The whole thing just feels like it's a very, very forced, over-the-top, pie-in-the-face joke. And I feel like the Muppets are good at doing jokes that are forced when they're winking at the camera in a way that makes us feel like we're part of the joke because we get how absurd it is. Yeah. And this movie mixes that, in the case of Myth Myth, with some jokes where it's just... It just feels like it's absurd for no good reason other than they needed something there, right? As some sort of plot but. contrivance. So with the with the third billboard, gosh, this movie has a lot of billboards in it. Um, there's the billboard. Maybe this comes before the pie in the face. In fact, I'm almost sure it does. Uh, the The billboard of um, the soda that yep. has to do with the way they redesigned the car for the electric mayhem uh, in the electric mayhem scene. That's, in a way, a very, very similar gag to in The Great Muppet Caper, when Miss Piggy needs a way to get to the... get to the gallery, and sure enough, a motorcycle just happens to roll out of the truck, and she turns to the camera like, what an unbelievable coincidence! That (laughs) line in that movie works so well! It's one of my favorites because it's a good commentary on deus ex machina, on stuff that movies do so often. And yeah. yet, for whatever reason, when the multicolored rainbow car pulls in front of the rainbow billboard, I was not getting that sense. I don't enjoy that joke the same way, because it feels like they just needed another way to get Doc Hopper out of the way. Like, Doc Hopper is just... The the movie's just alternating between, hey, look, here's another Muppet you know, and hey, look, Doc Hopper's back, and he's gone again, and here's another Muppet you know. And it's just like... <sighs> if okay, only it wasn't So let's talk so about let's talk about these two
1: billboards. Okay. All right. Mainly the pie one. Yeah. This film, the a lot of the point of this film is to turn everything up to eleven. Mhm. So that pie in the face gag you said, just seemed like a really you know over the top one. That's kind of the point. The right. point is that this film is over the top.
0: I mean, there's nothing in this film that isn't over-the-top. And I like that when it's not just forced. And that was, like, they needed a plot device, so they came up with an over-the-top plot device based on one of the oldest and lamest sticks in comedy. And it's like, you really couldn't think of something that was an actual joke, because there's, there's really no joke here. You'll never see a billboard that looks anything like that. Pie in the face, or just pie in general, and Billboard, there's no association there. There's nothing that okay. makes those part of the same joke. Whereas other examples of over-the-top absurdist humor, like what you see in um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, they have an episode early on where she's in a public school that has no budget. So what they do with the idea of a school having no budget is, they, you know, they've got that idea, so they can play with it. They can have a cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan as the gym teacher you understand Mm -hmm. what makes that joke work. That Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan is athletic, they can't afford a real person, so that's what they're doing. You get the logic of the joke, even though it is completely ridiculous and over-the-top. Right. But here, I just don't get it. When I look at some of the jokes here that are really silly and over-the-top, I just don't get it. I get the fork in the road, it's a pun. I don't get (laughs) a billboard that throws a pie that's a forced plot device to get rid of doc hopper for a little while so they can get the next muppet collected okay
1: all right i think that you know to say the kimmy schmidt thing yes okay that does work you're right but there's also you know half an hour of um plot going around that uh, episode to show that they are in a you know low budget public school. I do remember that episode. What would what would make you okay then with that pie gag? If they explained that, you know, there was over the top adverts everywhere, that they were you know would it be better if, you know, that pie in the face but happened and Kermit turned around to the camera and did a Miss Piggy and said, What an unbelievable coincidence. Or lucky that pie was there, or Talk about a pie in the face, or something like that. Would that have made it better if they had commented on it? Or Do you think even then it would have just been unnecessary?
0: I think even then it would have been unnecessary. I'm looking at the scene right now. I'm seeing the crash. There's the pie. There's the balloon coming down. Gonzo's on top of the car. There we go. So, and there's Max eating the whipped cream. So I'm seeing this scene and I'm thinking, the setup for the scene says that they need to do something that's related to Gonzo in the air with the balloons, Doc Hopper's gun, the car, the driving, the road, anything that takes advantage of stuff that's actually involved in the mechanics of this scene and what gives this scene its drive and its drama, or even its comedy, is fair game. And instead, they introduce pie. And it's like, why? That's just really, really random. The motorcycle isn't random. And so, I like jokes that don't feel like They're showing you something silly, like pie, because we all recognize that pie is silly, pie is for clowns, waka waka, but jokes that are actually playing with movie mechanics um, and the way that movies so often work. And in a way, that's one of the things that the Muppet movie is good about. It is, in a sense, a parody of Hollywood as a genre. One of my favorite things about this movie is the Muppet movie is called The Muppet Movie because it's the Muppets' take on movies. Um, Again, The Great Muppet Caper is sort of the same way and in some ways does this even better, but you very much get the sense that this is the Muppets crossing The Wizard of Oz and A Star is Born to give you really a return to classical Hollywood. I mean, this is the late 70s, Star Wars has just come out and has signified sort of a return to form after Hollywood uh, has sort of been in that weird new Hollywood phase for so many years, it's signifying the Vietnam era is done, this era of realism is done, it's back to Hollywood's fun and fantasy. The Muppets are clearly riding that here and using that well, and even the opening shots of the movie tell you to focus on it as a movie. Right? Mm -hmm. Like the first thing that you see is that worldwide pictures studio logo and the backlot. The first image is a movie backlot, a space that probably was not used much uh, during the new Hollywood era. I mean, something like The Graduate feels like it was shot all on location. Something like French Connection feels like it was shot on location, not on a backlot. And so when they show you the backlot, show you the studio, show you a screening room, Then they go into the big screen, and then they have the big epic shot in the clouds, in the sky, a big helicopter shot, a rainbow, and then they zoom in on the swamp from way up above. All of that is telling you this is big. This is a movie. This is, if you've seen on The Muppet Show, how the Muppets treat something like uh, the story of Robin Hood or the story of Alice in Wonderland, this is the Muppets' take on Hollywood as its own genre and as its own fairy tale and I appreciate that a lot Mm -hmm. and I like how that leads them to play with a lot of the key story beats like it makes sense for the last thing it makes sense for the movie to build up to uh Kermit falling in love with a girl because that's got to happen in the middle of every Hollywood movie there's always a woman involved who complicates things Um, and I wish the involvement of Miss Piggy did complicate things. Like, if there was some policy somewhere on that ad that Kermit first looked at that said, no pigs, but he brings Miss Piggy along anyway, um, and has that anxiety with him, that could add this element that normally comes with the introduction of another character at the midpoint of the movie.
1: But I would, sorry, if I may interject for a sec, I would argue that Kermit falling in love with Miss Piggy does create some sort of conflict how so well the only like you know going back to doc hopper he kidnaps miss piggy so the whole mel brooks scene wouldn't have happened if which does you know drive the story along it shows you know what um doc is capable of doing or at least is willing to do um that involves piggy that involves kermit's feelings for piggy so i would argue then
0: that that does drive the story along. That's true. That's a really good point. The way that Miss Piggy is used here to justifiably... Because I think he probably does say at some point to her that there's a man after him. And so there is that risk that she takes by joining him on his trip to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then we see the consequences of her taking that risk and where the story goes as a result of that. Uh, but then again after that the movie gets back to and then and then and then the movie gets to Miss Piggy karate chops them and then she gets a phone call and randomly leaves and then Kermit just leaves and Rolf is randomly with them and then as they're on the road randomly Miss Piggy shows up again and it's like well all right not really sure why you stepped out and then came back but yeah okay I,
1: I, I would agree that that Piggy thing never sat well with me
0: Yeah, that just doesn't... It's a contradiction, really, because in some ways, the whole point of the Mel Brooks scene, which again I'm watching right now, is Miss Piggy you know, defending Kermit. He's insulting Kermit, and so she gets angry because she likes him and she saves him. And then for her to suddenly have no affection for Kermit is very odd, especially because Well, you've interviewed Frank Oz, so you know that everything about Miss Piggy is supposed to be focused on her love for Kermit. Yeah. So that part really just feels random. But, uh, just bringing this back to my point of how they're hitting a lot of the beats that you want from a classical Hollywood movie, that makes sense because they're making her a little bit of the femme fatale, the character who you can't totally trust, um, but is tempting anyway. So I like how they get to that. Um how Miss Piggy is sort of introduced with the musical montage that's parodying so much of movie romance. And it's such a beautifully over-the-top song. I like how they have that big epic conclusion in a Western town, bringing you to, you know, the be-all, end-all classical Hollywood genre. Like, when people talk about genre cinema in the classical Hollywood era, the number one genre people point to as the example of genre cinema in its its purest form, is the Western. And I like how this movie recognizes that and tries to do something with it. I'm not sure that it really knows what to do except show a standoff to show that it's had one, but it does at least put an interesting spin on it by introducing these other characters as Kermit's friends backing him up. So the whole point is that Kermit isn't having a showdown alone. He isn't facing Doc Hopper alone like you would in a Western because he has friends with him And Doc Hopper doesn't have that. That's really the one good use of the Western. And then they have another forced contrivance with Animal getting them out of that scene. Like they just introduced last minute. By the way, here are these pills that can make things grow. It's absurd, even though it isn't really a funny kind of absurd. It's just random and weird. But buy it, because in a few minutes, we're going to need a giant animal that scares away people who have guns and could shoot Animal. It's not like he's bulletproof, but whatever.
1: (sighs) Okay. It's just
0: so much here just comes right the heck out of nowhere. And I'd be okay with it coming right the heck out of nowhere if it was funny. But a lot of this stuff, to my memory, never really made me laugh. Certainly so you're not saying, that... you're saying... Go ahead. Sorry, certainly not? Sir, the, I was just going to comment that the stupid gone with the Schwinn pun at the beginning of the movie, I never oh, got. Oh yeah. No, me either.
1: I... But are you saying that giant animal never made you
0: laugh? You never enjoyed giant animal head? I have never, any time I've watched the movie, enjoyed the giant animal head. Oh, I love the animal
1: head. And I love the animal head even more because I know that there was actually a giant animal head.
0: Okay, I appreciate the giant animal head for that reason. I love that they actually took the time to build it. I still think it looks weird and feels forced and makes the scene just awkward. Now, I'm a little bit biased here because... I, I... 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 I mean, I kind of, I can't take my own views on that scene for granted because that was one of the first times I ever saw the not Sesame Street Muppets, the Muppets Muppets okay. yep. was when I was very young, like three, and we were flipping through channels on TV and that scene came on and I'm like, hey, Kermit, and then giant animal. And I was terrified <laughs> um, that, yeah, that. Happened to me twice when I was a very little kid. The second time was with Muppet Frog Prince. Hey, Kermit! Then Tammanella turning into a bird. And I'm like, ah! Aww, so, I like
1: Taminella. But
0: that's the thing, is I came around to love Tamanella, And I came around to love the Bert and Ernie in a Pyramid sketch on Sesame Street, which also terrified me. Aww, I, so I never got scared by that. I always loved that sketch. I have never come around to get into um, the giant animal. I appreciate it on a puppetry level. But... That's the problem, is when I try to think of the things I like about this movie, I realize they're all defenses that people use to praise the Dark Crystal. When I look at this, I'm going, Wow, that's really impressive puppetry. Oh, but I can't use that as my defense of this movie, because I'd have to say the same thing about the Dark Crystal. Wow, those are really pretty shots. Crap. Wow, the music here is really lovely. Crap. Uh, 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 the effects are really impress. Crap. There had never been a movie quite like this before. Crap. There had never been this many puppets in a movie. Crap. Uh uh. It's very Jim? Crap! Like, every area I turn to trying to find stuff that I really appreciate about this movie forces me to appreciate the Dark Crystal, which I don't really feel like doing.
1: No, fair enough. That movie is a snowfest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, as we uh, are obligated to mention in every single episode of this podcast for reasons Absolutely. that I still don't know. I have yet to figure out how it is that we've ended up talking about the Dark Crystal in every episode of this podcast. But, but it feels we will like continue we
1: because I thoroughly enjoy crapping on the Dark Crystal.
0: Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. <sighs> but anyway, yeah, there's some stuff I like about the Muppet movie, too. Okay, give me just a quick
1: rundown. You know, we've gone quite a while. Let's just have a quick rundown now. We're not going to do your toast and a roast. I did think that would be a good idea, but we won't do it. Give me just a quick rundown then of the things you actually really appreciate about this film.
0: Right. So most of the things, as I mentioned, are stuff I could say about The Dark Crystal. And to be fair, most of my criticisms of this are also probably criticisms I would give Dark Crystal. Like a lot of it just being slow and showing off music. Um, or the story just trying to hit the main story beats without really having a lot of dynamics to it. But yep. I really, really enjoy how the soundtrack plays with the characters and takes the characters in new directions, um, particularly with I'm going to go back there someday for Gonzo. That adds something yep. new to Gonzo's character that I think is really interesting. Again, perhaps yep. a little bit forced. You know, the whole balloon scene feels a little bit like, okay... What the heck is this doing here? And I also hate it because you can clearly see that Gonzo's mouth isn't moving while he's talking. That has always bugged me, and it bugs me a little bit more every time I watch it. I like the scene with Kermit talking to himself. I think this is one of the best and most artistic representations of a person's inner monologue and inner conflict. It's simple. It had been done before. It's been done again since. Maybe it's even been done better, but it works really, really well here, especially with the music in the background and the vocal effects on the other Kermit. And especially because you don't see the other Kermit right away. You're just hearing it. And then you see the other Kermit. And then they end it with the shooting star. Like, it's a good Kermit moment. I like another one of those, here's a nod to Hollywood's deus ex machina moments when the Electric Mayhem finds uh, them in the desert by using the screenplay. Because they actually did set Mm -hmm. that up by handing Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem the screenplay. That's one of the few moments in this film where there's a good early setup and a late payoff that you're not expecting, but it works. I like the Big Bird cameo. I find that funny. I think the finale with All the Muppets is really cool and is a little bit of a, you know, it pulls on the heartstrings in a way that's justified. Not a forced pull on the heartstrings, not too sappy, just really, really nice. Uh, I enjoy the gag that ends with Sweetums crashing through at the very end. I love the character of Max. Um, some of the jokes work, like I have mixed feelings about the Harry Krishna joke because it's a joke that has not aged well, but once you get it, it's fun and it's fun to play along with. A few other cute little lines like bear left, right frog, and things like that. The fork in the road gag, just simple little jokes. A few things that are fun to quote. I like the cast, but I'm bothered by how some of them were not used very well. There obviously wasn't time to give all of those guest stars their own scene, so I understand how some had to be quick cameos. But it's just, I love Madeline Kahn, and yet I have never really seen her do something with the Muppets in particular that I think is some of her best work. I mean, sing what I sing, sing after me is, is a good sketch. I enjoy that, but it's not like Madeline Kahn being her funniest. And I enjoy Madeline Kahn being really, really funny. Now, I believe this movie treats Miss Piggy in a weird way. Like, she first... She first... Okay. This is my last criticism, and then I'll try to get back to the positive stuff, and it's a quick one. When Miss Piggy is introduced here, she's introduced as being really beautiful, which just goes against everything that's been set up in the show. Like, everyone just finds Miss Piggy beautiful in this, and it's like, what in the world? Based on everything we understand about Piggy on The Muppet Show, the whole point is that she kind of isn't. And yet here she is receiving catcalls from Gonzo for some reason. Um, I feel like there there are a couple of catcalls in this film. And once I noticed that, I thought, wait a second. There's also catcalling in The Great Muppet Caper, and in Muppets Take Manhattan, and in Labyrinth. Like, this is a weird running theme for Jim Henson. And I don't understand that. But I'm used to it, so I'm going to let it go as a product of its time for right now. And I'll stress over that some other time. I enjoy the use of the Swedish chef at the film projector. I enjoy the little cameos from background Muppets. There are lots of little things that I like here. Simple little puppetry effects, of course, obviously. The Muppets driving a car. And just the fact that this movie is enjoying the fact that it's a movie. It's enjoying the fact that this is the Muppets in the real world on the big screen. And that it's Hollywood. Even though they shot it in London, most likely. Um... It's just having fun with the fact that it's the Muppets doing a movie. And I appreciate that. I enjoy that a lot.
1: All right. Good. Well, as long as you can appreciate it on some level. And as long as we can both agree that at least it's not the Dark Crystal.
0: I will gladly grant you it is so, so much better than the Dark Crystal will ever be or could ever be. And with that, I think we've come to the end... Of this very random episode of Muppet Fans Talking. Jared, thank you very much for joining us. Where can we find you online?
1: Uh, Muppetmindset.com.
0: Just type in Muppet Mindset and you'll find me. All right, and this has been a production of MuppetHub.com. I'm J.D. Hansel, and I will sell your frog legs!
1: That's a Mel Brooks impression, isn't it? Yeah! I really enjoy how Mel Brooks said cerebrectomy in that joke.
0: Yes! Mel Brooks! Zero-brectomy.
1: Zero-brectomy.
0: I love his character in this! Mel Brooks' character in this movie is pretty much his best performance, maybe rivaled by his performance in The Twelve Chairs which is more of a dramatic performance, and maybe that's why I like it, because um, it's a more it shows a little bit more of a serious side to him. Um, but here, he's playing one of my favorite movie villains, and we only get this villain for this one scene. If it were up to me, that villain would have had a scene in every other Muppet movie after this. Yeah. If it were up to me, that Steve Martin waiter would have a scene in every other Muppet movie after this. It would just be a rule that whenever the Muppets are in a restaurant, in any Muppet movie, Steve Martin always turns around wearing those same stupid shorts saying, May (laughs) I help you? And I've never understood that. I don't understand the shorts. Like, was that a thing in the 70s? I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. Oh, I just... Now that I'm at the end, I'm just noticing another weird thing. Like, Kermit gets to the office... And they just delay it by having the receptionist not let him in. And then they are really mean to the receptionist. Like, they could kill her. (laughs) She has serious animal allergies. And they could kill her. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, but, you know, whatever it takes to to get a head in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, that's true. Man, is Orson Welles good in this. I know he only has the one line. But his face is building up to that one line. Ah, they're so good.